we could probably dismiss right now. <laughs> You're not that lucky, don't worry. Uh, <clears throat> all right. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 27 through 38 this morning. And if you're new with us this morning, uh, we are continuing a series through the gospel of Mark called None Like Him. So we are walking through this documentary or biography, if you will, of the life of Jesus as Mark has recorded it in his historical account. And so we're looking at all these different stories and, and seeing things about Jesus, and we're going to continue that today uh, in a very pretty neat conversation we're going to look at in Mark chapter 8. Well, let me pray for us uh, first, and then we'll dig right in. Jesus, we are, again, we're here to worship you. We're here to make much of your name. And Lord, as we just sang to you and to one another, death has been arrested. Lord, we are truly free. So Lord, would you set captives free this morning by the power of your word? It's in your name we pray, amen. You know, the last couple of years, there has been a lot of big news in the world, from COVID to international conflicts, from social issues to politics, to the Jaguars getting a new head coach and then losing that head coach and then getting a new head coach again, right? It's just been a roller coaster, hasn't it? Culturally for all of us in different ways these last couple of years in almost every aspect of life, which means, of course, that there's no shortage of opinions on all those different things, right? I mean, hey, all you got to do is log in to Facebook or Twitter or whatever and just see all the unsolicited opinions on all those issues, whether you want to see them or not. They're in your face. There they are, right? But there's a question we need to ask ourselves. Where do our opinions and our beliefs and our viewpoints in regards to all these issues, where do they really originate? or for any issue for that matter. How do we form an opinion? Well, our opinions and our viewpoints about anything in life are usually the combination of several things. You have to take into account how you are informed on the matter, right? So who are you listening to? What are you reading? What has been your personal experience in the matter? Maybe it affects you deeply on a personal level. Maybe there's been different types of social influences. You have to look at your upbringing and the way you were raised and all these things. So you put all those ingredients, if you will, together, and that is what forms your opinion or your belief on a particular issue. In a very similar way, I believe that that is how most people's opinions of Christianity and namely Jesus himself are formed. Particularly if you grew up here in America, then you have been informed in different ways about who Jesus actually is. You see, we all have different influences and experiences with religion in some way. Again, I'm speaking if, if you grew up here in, the, in America, even I would go as far to say in the South, which is just more of a cultural thing. So whether you grew up in church, attending church or not, 
You have an opinion about Jesus. You have an opinion about Christianity because you've been exposed to the idea of it at least. But instead of forming our opinions about Jesus based on what everyone else has told us or what everyone else is saying or whatever church experience you had at some point in your life growing up or as an adult, what if, what if we just pushed all those ingredients aside and we looked straight to the source For ourselves, we look straight to Jesus and his words about himself. What if that was the approach we had? That that seems fair, right? Well, today in Mark chapter 8, that is exactly what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. To have a candid conversation with him about who they think he really is. What is their opinion? Well, let's read this conversation. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through it slowly and dissect it a little bit, and then I'm going to make some points about it at the end. So let's, let's just walk through this conversation verse by verse. So verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am. Now that's an interesting question because Jesus's fame has been growing tremendously. He's been teaching, he's been doing miracles all around the region of Galilee and northern Israel. He's been healing people, he's been forgiving sins, he's been casting out demons. It's been pretty fascinating things, right, that that people have not seen before. So obviously word is getting out right? Word is getting out. It's going viral, we would say in our day and time, right? It's lots of people are hearing about this Jesus person. And so along with that fame comes lots of opinions about who he really is. You know, what is he really up to? And so people are forming opinions based on their experiences and what they've heard and what they've seen or what they've read. So Jesus asked the disciples what the public opinion poll is. And that's not because he's concerned about his approval rating. That's not what it is at all. It's because he's going to teach his disciples something very important later about this. So what are the people saying? Let's see, verse 28. And they told him, so here's here's what people are saying, who he is, his identity, Uh, John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So there's all kinds of opinions floating around out there about who Jesus really is, right? Verse 29, look at this. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You see, Jesus wants them to think about this for themselves. But first, you've got Peter, one of the disciples, who, you know, he's just that kid in school who has to answer every question. You know what I mean? It's like, we know you know the answer, little Johnny. Thank you. Could you give someone else a chance? This is Peter, right? And look what he does. He speaks up, verse 29. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now, hold up for a second. Okay, so the Christ, that word is a Greek word, Christos, which is the same word in the Hebrew as 
Messiah. So Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. Both words mean the anointed one. So it's not just an anointed one. It's the anointed one of God whom the people of the Old Testament were longing for and waiting for, this rescuer, this deliverer, but delivering them from what? Well, the Jewish tradition at the time was not expecting a spiritual salvation so much as they were a political liberator. So when they say, when Peter says, the Christ, I want you to understand that that term he's bringing in to this conversation in his mind is something very different than probably what we would think when we hear Christ. He's thinking of this great political liberator who's going to free them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so he's going to walk into town with all this power and he's going to have a parade and there's going to be, it's going to be very prestigious. He's probably going to end up living in a palace. And he's going to have an army behind him of soldiers ready to take on Rome. So when Peter says, the Christ, the Messiah, that's what he's picturing in his mind. But here's what Jesus says. This is an interesting statement that Mark observes. Verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, it's not because Jesus has some undercover mission going on. It's because he does not want to be known in that way because that's not who he is. He's not a political liberator and so he doesn't want word to get out that that's what he's doing. You see, Jesus doesn't want people to think of him that way because that's not what he came to acquire and accomplish. He wants people to think of him in light of who he actually is and look what he says then. He's about to tell the disciples, verse 31, here's what he's really about. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, if Peter's definition of the Christ, the Messiah, is correct, then none of that makes sense, right? You see, Peter can't stand this. In his mind, there's no reason that Jesus Jesus should have to suffer or die. This flies in the face of everything he's been thinking about who Jesus is and what he came to do and about his, Peter's, personal involvement in the matter. So look, look what Peter does. Verse 32. And he said this plainly. In other words, Jesus isn't hiding anything. He said this very clearly for the disciples to understand. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter has the audacity to rebuke his master, to rebuke Jesus, the Messiah. Why? Because Jesus isn't lining up in Peter's mind with who he thinks he's supposed to be. Jesus isn't squaring up with Peter's agenda. So here's how Jesus responds. Look at this, verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Those are strong words from Jesus to Peter in front of all the other disciples, but rightfully so. 
Rightfully so. But why does Jesus refer to Peter as Satan? Because this is exactly something that Satan would do. And he already did, if you're familiar with the Bible in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness. But here's the thing. Satan would love to keep Jesus from the cross because that is what he actually came to accomplish. That means that he, Satan knows that the cross is what it's going to take to deliver people from their worst oppression, and it's not political, it's spiritual. So Peter's mind is fixated on the world's definition of what a savior should be and what that should look like. But Jesus says, no, the things of God. God's truth in the matter is going to turn your worldly definitions upside down, Peter. Look at verse 34. Jesus elaborates on this, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, the disciples and the crowds thought it'd be easy. They thought it'd be easy to follow Jesus, right? I mean, they think that they are just following the guy who's gonna lead them from liberate to liberation from Rome and just think of all the great perks that would come along with that, right? Man, as long as we're following this guy, right, we're gonna have political power. We're gonna become our own authority. We're gonna have a life of ease and comfort. Maybe I'll have a place in the palace. We're gonna have economic success. We're gonna have admiration from others. All the ingredients of a good life right here, buddy. Yes, yeah, sign me up. But as good as all that sounds, there's one big problem. Jesus says that is not at all what's going to happen or what you're going to get if you actually follow me. And then he says something that's shocking, but also very important for us to understand, for anyone to understand who says that they want to follow Jesus. Verse 35, we'll go down through verse 38. Jesus continues, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? You see, Peter had this opinion he had formed in his mind about who he thought Jesus was supposed to be. Peter had been taught and influenced by different people growing up who told him that the Messiah, the Christ, was more concerned about power in this world in hopes of giving everyone a nice and comfortable life. But Jesus' response to all of this is shocking because at the heart of what Jesus is saying is a call to embrace him for who he truly is and what he actually came to do and what that means for us. And that's exactly what I want us to talk about for the rest of our time today. I think those are three truths, three truths we must accept about Jesus. So regardless of whatever opinion you walked in here with about what you've been told or how you were raised 
and what bad or good church experience you've had up until this point, there are three truths straight from the source, from Christ himself, that we must embrace. And the first one is his identity. We must embrace his true identity and not just come up with one in our minds. See, we live in a context where virtually everyone has heard of Jesus, right? I mean, if you go to Publix or you know down the street or whatever, and you just ask a stranger, hey, have you ever heard of Jesus? Well, they'll be like, yeah, you know? And then they'll look at you funny and they'll be like, what are you gonna say next, right? And so they, we live in this context where virtually everyone has heard of Jesus, at least his name and something about him. So you're gonna get lots of different opinions, of course, about his identity. So some people consider Jesus to be an interesting historical figure, right? They admit that he was a real person, probably a really good moral teacher, but they wouldn't say that he's divine, right? He's not actually God. Of course, many people are more indifferent or just apathetic and just don't have a strong opinion because they don't think about him much at all. Some people are very antagonistic towards Jesus. And then there's some who would say, and know a lot of the facts, right? So they would, they would, you know, maybe they grew up in church or just from even living in a cultural context as we do, hearing about Christianity in different forms. So there's gonna be all kinds of opinions, but what I love that Jesus here, he makes it personal. And he asks the disciples, he says, okay, that's good. That's what everybody else is saying, but here's my question. Who do you say that I am? What do you actually believe in your heart about me is what Jesus is saying. And Peter says, the Christ. And, and let's be clear here, he's not wrong, right? Peter's not wrong in saying that Jesus is the Christ. He's got the terminology correct. But here's what's frightening about Peter's response. He knows the right term, but he has the wrong definition. He correctly labels Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the son of man. In other words, Jesus is God in the flesh. He's fully God and he's fully man. Peter is getting that part right, but he incorrectly defines his mission and his purpose. So he doesn't really understand his identity then. And I just wonder, I mean, could that be possible for us? Like, could it be possible for us to know all the correct Christian lingo? in all the right terms, and wear your Christian t-shirt or whatever, and have no problem saying, oh, I believe Jesus is God, sure. But all the while, even though we would say that, we have a misunderstanding of what this really means. Could it be possible that you know all the right words and have the correct appearance of being a very devout follower of Jesus when really you're just looking for a good, comfortable life and you want social respect from your family or peers because they're Christians. And so the truth is, you just want an easy Jesus to follow. You see, you can have the correct head knowledge of Jesus' identity without truly embracing his gospel in your heart. Confessing Jesus is the Christ, your Savior, fully God, fully man. That is correct. But you can't stop with just knowing his identity. You have to embrace his mission for yourself. That's the second truth we must accept. We confess, yes, Jesus is 
the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the Savior of the world who gave up his life for ours. We confess that, but we have to really embrace his mission. So if you affirm that Jesus is God, then you have to accept his teachings. And that makes sense because God is God, and so whatever he says, we should perk up and listen to, right? And here's what he said. Look at this, verse 31 again. And he began to teach them about, or teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and rise again. So Jesus is saying he must die and he must rise again. But why does Jesus say he must do these things? You see, the reason Jesus must be rejected, killed, and raised again is because that's what he had to do to save humanity. You see, the gospel, that word means the good news. And so when we say the good news, what we mean is you first have to understand the bad news. So here's the bad news real quick, okay? The bad news is that God created a good world, but we humans, we messed it up. And so what I mean by that is that we have rebelled against God, every single one of us in our own hearts. We have chosen to not live according to God's good design that he has given us in this world. I mean, he set the stage for Adam and Eve to thrive, right? He gave them everything they could ever want. And yet in their hearts, submitting to God's authority was just not, eh, just not what they wanted. Boy, we have inherited that problem. We don't want to submit to anyone's authority except our own. We don't want to lay down our life in front of someone else. We want them to lay it down in front of us. And so that's the great, that's the great dilemma for the human soul is that we all are trying to be our own boss. We're essentially, you could say it this way, we're all trying to be our own savior. And so we turn to all kinds of things other than God himself to help in that saving process, to make us feel better about ourselves morally and emotionally. We turn to idols. We turn to things that may be good in our lives, but we put them on a pedestal. We put them so high that if, we were, if they're taken from us, or if they're even threatened to be taken from us, we panic and we grow fearful and anxious because we feel like we have to have those things. We have to have those things in order for our lives to have meaning and purpose. And so when you start worshiping something other than God, whatever it may be, approval, success, money, your children, your parents, right? You can worship things, you can worship people. Whenever you turn to anything else besides God himself, for true life and happiness and peace and salvation, that's gonna to lead to all kinds of friction and tension and problems in our lives. That's why we see so much sin and suffering and brokenness in the world. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to earth because he must die. In other words, sin requires payment. When you rebel against your creator, you think you're just gonna get away with it? You think he's just gonna turn his head to the side or sweep it under the rug? He is a just and righteous, holy God. It'd be like a judge, right? It would be like a judge letting a convicted murderer just go free with no penalty, nothing. Just saying, you know what? I know that you've been proven guilty, but man, just go have a good one. 
If God did that to sin, the problem of sin, what kind of judge would he be? What kind of God would he be? He would be violating his own righteous, holy character. So sin must be punished. A payment is required. And the good news is that Jesus Christ, when he hung on the cross, he was hanging there in your place. You see, that was the death. That was the eternal spiritual death that you and I should have died. Because Jesus gave his life in our place as our substitute before holy God the Father. By faith, we can have salvation. We can know God. We can live with him forever. We can experience his love and his grace and his forgiveness. You see, that's the good news. That's why Jesus must suffer and must die. There's no other way. You can't dig yourself out of that dilemma. You can't just try to be a good person and hope that in the end you were good enough. It's just not gonna work. It's not possible. And Jesus said that he would rise again. We're gonna come back to that part later. But Peter, you see, he didn't like what he was hearing. This isn't the Jesus that he had formed in his mind to help him achieve his life and his agenda. Peter had a more important mission for Jesus. And I'm afraid that's how a lot of us are thinking these days. You see, in other words, as long as Jesus conforms to us, right? As long as Jesus conforms to our model of what we need him to be, right? Then it's all good. Whether you come to church once a week or once a year or whatever, you can just use Jesus, right? You can use him as a means to an end. So if you need people to think that you're a good moral person, then sure, I'm gonna loosely attend church every now and then to just convince people that I'm a good moral person. And so you're just using Jesus, right? Or you could be here every week. You could be here every week and you could look all nice and pretend like your life has no problems because again, you just need people to think you're a good righteous person when on the inside you're rotting away. So some of us use Jesus a lot and some of us use him just a little bit, maybe like a safety net. And so when times get rough, we turn to him very quickly. We never pray, but then when something bad happens or we need you know, an extra in injection of cash or whatever, it's like, oh Lord, please. Just as Peter did not want to look at the cross, just as Peter did not want to accept Jesus's true identity and his mission, and we're guilty of that too. We have a mission and we want Jesus to just fall in line behind us and we'll just use him when we need him. You see, Jesus refers to Peter as Satan because Satan, just like Peter in the moment, doesn't want you to look to the gospel. He doesn't want you to keep coming back to the one true message that will save your soul and sanctify your soul. Satan doesn't want us to look at the cross. He doesn't want us to dwell and reflect on the goodness of God and the gospel every day so we can stay fixated on our own agenda, on our own little kingdom that we're trying to build in whatever virtual reality world we're creating. But the mission of Jesus is to save us from ourselves. And that's exactly what the next and last truth builds upon. Look at this. Thirdly and lastly, here's what we have to accept from Christ. 
his identity, his true mission for our lives through the gospel and his requirements. Look at this. Verse 34 again through 36. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You see, Jesus explains what following him requires. It's a forfeiture of your soul, of yourself, I'm sorry. It's a forfeiture of yourself. It's a forfeiture of your idols, your terms and conditions, your need to control him or be in control of your life in general, your need to be liked by others, your thinking that in your pride you can make yourself right with God according to your own standards and rules that you've created and formulated in your head. But all of that is just self-worship. That's not worshiping the creator, that's worshiping the creation yourself. And that ironically leads to losing the one thing that you tried to save, yourself. You see, the great irony of humanity is that the very things we turn to for salvation will be the very things that keep us eternally separated from God. But if you turn away from yourself and you turn to Christ in faith, accepting who he is and what he's done and commit to giving your life for his glory, then... And only then will you truly find real life, come what may. His identity, his mission, his requirements, not yours. Just as Jesus turned to his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? I think that's the question on this beautiful Easter Sunday morning that we cannot ignore. What's your response? Verse 37 and 38, Jesus concludes this. He says, For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You know, you can get away with ignoring some things in life for a while. Listen, I am a pro at ignoring my check engine light in my car. You know what I mean? Anybody else feel me? <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't always work out. You know what I mean? Like when you, you can only ignore that for so long. Oh, it's fine. I'm sure it's nothing, right? But eventually, it's not going to be fine. So here's the thing about Jesus. He's too great to ignore. I mean, think about it. If he's telling the truth, if Jesus is who he really says he is, the creator of all humans and the savior of the world, if he is telling the truth, then that changes everything. Because now we're all affected by this. And we would be insane to ignore it or think that we'll eventually get around to dealing with it. Jesus demands a response from everyone. As the Christian author Timothy Keller once said, either you'll have to kill Jesus or you'll have to crown him. But the one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. His claims don't allow that type of answer. 
Man, that's so true. Each one of us must decide for ourselves about Jesus, and nobody can decide for you. Your parents cannot respond to Jesus on your behalf. Your cultural Christian heritage cannot respond to Jesus for you. Your spouse cannot co-sign on the dotted line with you to get you into heaven, so to speak, if that's what you're hoping. We each, as individuals, must decide if we are going to fully embrace the real Jesus for ourselves, his God identity, his gospel mission, and the hope that his resurrection brings. We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said he must suffer, he must be killed, and he must rise again. Don't you know, like Peter, man, it's almost like he didn't even hear that part. Peter was so fixated on what he wanted Jesus to be and how he wanted to just rule his own life that it's almost like when Jesus said, and I'm going to rise again, death is not the end. It just went in one ear and out the other for Peter. He didn't even listen to that part. But boy, may we listen to that today. Listen to this, Romans 6 verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, you go under that water, symbolizing that you've been buried with Christ, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When Matthew came out of the water this morning in the baptistry, what that symbolizes is that he has a new life. He's been created anew, he has a new heart. And so what does that mean? That means that you have all the hope in the world now, that you can, you can take the risk you can take the risk of turning from your idols. You can take that risk of losing your life on this earth because you know that you have gained it eternally. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 14 through 18, listen to this. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Listen to this. Be encouraged by this. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. The resurrection is our hope. It is our motivation. It is our anthem. It is our security. It enables us to persevere onward in this very difficult world, carrying our own, our own cross if need be. Regardless of public opinion, regardless of what everyone says, we can press on, not in our own strength, but because of the one who has already risen from the grave. We know, we know what's coming. We know where we're headed. 
our future is secure. There's no reason to be anxious or fearful about your future if you are in Christ. Because your future is just as much secure as his because you are united in his death and resurrection. The resurrection brings new life now and eternal life later. That becomes true for you through faith. You say, Pastor, I don't know. I hear what you're saying and I believe what you're saying, but how do I embrace this truly? How do I make this true for me? Through faith. Look at this. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Maybe you came here today with an opinion. Maybe you walked into this building with an opinion of Jesus. And you may be culturally like the disciples. You're right there with Jesus. People think you're a Christian. And you have done a fantastic job of convincing people that you are a Christian. That you actually have embraced the gospel for your own heart and that you follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You may have walked in here today, and the truth is you don't want to be here, and you're like, when is he going to shut up? And you're just living in the world, and the truth is this doesn't even interest you. And so your opinion of Jesus is not even really based on what he has said. It's just based on everything else, what everybody else has said or done that you've observed. Or, like Peter, you just have your own agenda. And giving up the things of this world just sounds a little too risky for you. Listen, nobody's calling you to be a monk and go live in a monastery. That's not the point. The call the call is to come and die to yourself, to lay your ambition down, to lay your agenda down, to lay the almighty God of self-determination down and just cry out to Jesus and say, I need you. And I'm so sorry that I've been pretending like I don't. Jesus did not come to heal those who don't think they need a doctor. He came to heal those who fall at his feet and say, I can't do this. It's exactly, it's exactly what he wants to hear from you. Maybe in your mind there's a hundred reasons for you to wait or hold back. But I can think of one great reason you shouldn't wait any longer. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus in your place, that's the gospel. If you're here this morning and you have questions and you wanna talk with someone, we're gonna have some counselors down front after the song, Kyle's gonna close us with a song. Listen, don't be ashamed. Come down here and speak with them. They, they would love to talk with you and just hear your heart. I would love to do the same. I'm gonna be out in the cafe right outside these doors 
to my left in the lobby, just stop by and say, Pastor, can we talk? Yes, absolutely. We'll make some time to do that. But don't leave here today without the assurance of knowing that you have fully embraced not a figment of your imagination, but the real Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. And Lord, I pray that the hope of the resurrection would be so real and true for us today, for every person in here, Lord, that we would accept you through faith, not through self-determination, not through trying to be our own authority and live life the way we think it should go, but by laying down ourselves, losing our lives so that we can find it in yours. Jesus, thank you for losing your life so that we could find true life. Would you speak to our hearts, Lord? Shape us into the people you want us to be. Let us not run from you with all kinds of opinions floating around us, Lord. Let us run to you, the source of truth, and accept you for who you really are. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.